I know a lot of you are visiting with us today. Part of what we do in our Sunday mornings together is we study the Scriptures. We're going right through Paul's letter to the church in Rome, the book of Romans. We find ourselves in chapter 2 today, and we're going to pick up our reading starting at verse 11 through the 16th verse, and then we're going to discuss that together, talk about what Paul means by this and how this relates to our lives for a bit. Now, those of you who are used to being with us, I'll warn you, we're running a bit late today, so don't get anxious, don't look at your clock, just hang with me until we release. For there is no partiality with God, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, for it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus." This is the word of the Lord, and we want to begin our meditations today by pondering Jan Muzzin here, driving around town singing praises to Jesus when she sees in her rearview mirror a policeman with his lights on. Uh (coughs) Uh-oh. Jan pulls over, and the officer walks up to her car and says, tell me, ma'am, do you know what the speed limit is? on this street? And Jan says, yes, officer, it is 40 miles per hour. And he says, well, you were going 58, but since you know that the speed limit is 40, we're in good shape. (laughs) Is that how that conversation goes? No, I don't think so. And how likely is it that the policeman would say to Jan, Jan, our records show, that you are of Irish descent and a member of North Park Church. So, hey, no worries. (laughs) No, that's not how it goes. At least I hope not. Justice does not work like that. The criteria for judgment, it's not found in what you know. It's also not found in what groups you happen to be a part of or affiliated with. It is about behavior. This is what Paul is driving at in the first four verses that we have read today. Really, this morning, you're going to get two sermons. You excited about that? Two! But not to disappoint you, they are two very short sermons. First from verses 12 to 15, the second focused on verse 16 with a look back at verse 11. From verses 12 to 15, the Apostle Paul is clarifying some important points about our future judgment. And he says three things there are to see. First of all, is that it is about our doing, not our knowing. It's about our doing, not our knowing. Behavior over understanding. In verse 13, he says that the hearers of the law do not get justified, but only the doers of the law. So Jan's awareness of the speed limit, well, that's a big nothing burger. The just lawman is assessing her behavior in the light of the law. Now, that may seem obvious to us, but the Jews to whom Paul wrote, they thought 
otherwise. There was this presumption that because they were Jewish, because they attended synagogue and heard the law, because they were members of a privileged group, they would be accepted by God, while all those nasty Gentiles, they were going to get their just desserts. They even perceived some legal privileges were attached to their hearing of the law being read to them as if just hearing was the point. It's as if some of you on Judgment Day may try to remind God that, hey, hey, Lord, I listened to 637 Dan Henley sermons. I know it seems that uh, like doing that should win you some points, and I would be in complete agreement with you, but apparently... Uh, the Lord doesn't see it that way. He expects you to actually do as He commands. Now, we ended last time by seeking to explain how this uh, proposition is consistent with a gospel of grace for sinners, which Paul opens up in the following chapters. And this passage takes us back to that same concern. The doers of the law are justified, writes Paul. The same Paul who will say in chapter 3 that our justification is by faith apart from any works of the law. So we could dismiss Paul as being simply inconsistent or being wrong. That, that's an option. We could also suggest that what we read here is the high requirement of the law, but that nobody actually meets it. John Stott, in fact, takes that angle. But I agree with the vast majority of commentaries on this passage in arguing that what Paul says in verse 13 is not inconsistent with his gospel and is a fair description of redeemed men and women. The verse does not address how they are justified on what basis they are justified, it simply says that the justified will be doers of the law. Whether they're doing or something else is the basis of their justification. That's going to be addressed a little later. But this verse describes the redeemed, not how they got to be the redeemed. And the description, it's not meant to suggest any type of perfection. They, the law keepers, they are law keepers in a relative way. When you read 1 John, you encounter this same problem because there in John's letter, he says that we prove ourselves to be lovers of Jesus by our obedience to his word. But it also says in 1 John that we are to confess our sins to the Lord. So how do those two fit together? Your love of Christ leads you to obey, but when you sin, you have to confess your sin. It only makes sense if the apostle means that believers are generally, but not perfectly, obedient. John MacArthur puts it this way, that obedience is the direction, if not the perfection, of the believer's life. Another good John, Brother Piper, writes this, the ones who will be acquitted at the last judgment will be those who, one, love God's law, two, depend on His help to live according to the truth that they have, and three, trust God for His mercy when they stumble. And this is so because when the Spirit gives us new life, He does not just pardon us, He changes us. In defense of this approach, I remind you of how Jesus told His disciples that if their righteousness did not exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees who demonstrated a phony righteousness, that they would not inherit the kingdom of God. So someday... In the near future, make it your goal to be here for this, someday we're going to get to Romans chapter 8, 
Look at what it says there in Romans 8 too. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Listen to this. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And there you go. This amazing gospel that Paul preaches promises not only a substitute who pays for our sins, but an internal power that turns lawbreakers into law keepers. And that should strike us as wonderful news. We are not left in a pit of sin where we serve sin and serve Satan, but the Lord lifts us up out of that pit into a new lifestyle that honors Him. But I find many of us struggle with this teaching, and we do so in some cases because of what it may say about loved ones that we hope might be saved, but honestly do not demonstrate a heart to follow Christ in the way of obedience to His Word. So that's hard when you see that. But that clearly is an implication of New Testament teaching. A heart that is indifferent to obeying Christ is a heart that is indifferent to His sacrifice as well. All right, we move on to see, secondly, that although judgment is concerned with our doing, not our knowing, it does take our knowledge into consideration. Scripture says this in many places, judgment is always according to our knowledge, at least the knowledge that is accessible to us. So verse 12 all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. In other words, those Gentiles who have never heard the word of Scripture, they sinned without the law. As we will see, they had other forms of revelation, not, not the Scriptures, and that will be taken into account at their judgment. But the Jewish folks who grew up around the Scriptures, who were blessed in that additional way, will be judged more strictly because of the greater light from which they turned in order to follow after their lust. So you know the biblical principle. Of those who are given much, much will be expected. That or required. That applies to young people Growing up at North Park Church, who came to Vacation Bible School and heard a lot about Jesus, they're responsible for how they respond to what they've been taught. And it applied to those first century Jews who had the privilege of hearing the Word of God and in some cases, you know, actually encountering the Messiah live and in the flesh. So judgment, it's always related to one's knowledge or exposure to the truth of God. But our third point from this passage is that everybody knows enough. Everybody knows enough to legitimate God's judgment. Paul made this point as well in chapter 1, which we've covered a few weeks back, and here he expands on what this means for two groups. First, the Jewish folks who are responsible because they have the written revelation of God. The Gentiles did not have that, but what did the Gentiles have? They had the revelation of God in creation and in their own conscience. This is the point there in verse 14, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, 
their conscience bearing witness, their thoughts alternately accusing or defending them. And I think we all generally understand what he's getting at here. There is this common grace gift of the Lord we often call conscience. It's likely part of the image of God that we share. Christians need to be honest and need to be clear. Unbelievers whom we believe are quite lost still do many very nice things, don't they? I remember around the time of my sister's death being impressed by the the kindness of folks whom I, I do not believe shared my love for the Savior, but through the common grace provisions of God, through cultural norms, and through decent parenting, their depravity is mitigated. I thought of Abimelech in Genesis chapter 20. You know that story? Abraham and Sarah moved to the land of Gerar, and Abraham was afraid because Sarah was a really nice-looking woman, and Abraham knew that he might get taken out by somebody so that they could take his wife as their own. So what did he do? He lied. He told people, this is my sister, okay? The pagan king of the place, Abimelech, does indeed take her as a member of his harem until he learns in a dream that she was, in fact, Abraham's wife, and he was about to commit adultery with her. So he gives her back and reproves Abraham for lying to him about this and setting him up to do something quite evil. And in this case, it was the pagan polygamist who's the moral hero, as opposed to Abraham, the father of the faithful, or maybe Abraham, the father of the inconsistent. Anyway, we see this common grace at work in those who are not born again. Thank God it is there. As it is removed, which I think to some respect has been happening in our culture over the last years, as it is removed, the world goes to pot and becomes a much more dangerous place. Now, Paul's thinking takes this turn in verse 14. He says that sometimes the Gentiles, by their conduct and speech, show that they know what is right, It shows they do know their obedience is partial and flawed, but it shows they know. Oddly enough, this reminded me of when my wife and I were actively homeschooling our kids when they were little, and uh, we were teaching them math. And I was frequently consternated about my children's various mathematic inabilities. And the question I would ask myself many times is, does this child who can't seem to figure out this problem Does he not get it, or is he unwilling to do the hard mental work? Ever been there as a parent or or as a teacher? You know, is this beyond them, or are they just being lazy? Sure, uh, uh, sometimes the child, though, would slip up and show me they really could do the work. So then afterwards, I knew that I was dealing with laziness. Same thing here unbelievers who want to argue that there is no such thing as objective moral law will let the cat out of the bag when they make arguments that appeal to an objective moral law. They say things like this, no one can say what is right and what is wrong for you, but then they'll say slavery, oh, that's always bad. Anytime that goes on, that's evil. And I go, ah, so you do believe in a fixed standard after all, don't you? Yes, they do. Everyone really does, regardless of the arguments they make, and uh, most of us agree about the standards as well. 
Truth is good. Lies are bad. Saving lives is good. Taking lives is bad. Giving to others is good. Stealing from others is bad. These are universal moral norms that everyone believes deep down. This is one reason I feel we, uh, we who know and love the truth have an obvious advantage in cultural debates. I know many people are fooling themselves, or they're attempting to do so. They really don't believe that extinguishing the lives of their babies in the womb is okay. They know deep down that that is wrong. And they know deep down that there are sexual acts that are unnatural and wrong, and that stealing is wicked, and that war is tragic. Sometimes their selfish interests pull them towards contrary arguments, but they're going against conscience at those points. They know better. They truly do. And this is Paul's point in Romans 1 and Romans 2. Only the redeemed will really love God's law, but everyone has some knowledge of it, and everyone is accountable to it. Okay, that was the first short sermon. (laughs) Now on to the second. We dive into the second one based on verse 16, where Paul says, On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. The syntax of this sentence is a little bit awkward, but it is packed with important stuff, so we're going to break it down into four short points. First, there is a day. We spoke of this last time, the day of judgment, called in Scripture, the day or that day. It is like the biggest day yet to come when the living and the dead are before the throne of God being judged. God is going to sit upon His throne and everyone will answer to Him for how they responded to the revelation of Himself. There is a day. Secondly, there is a judge. The verse says, God will judge. But then it adds the phrase, look at it, adds the phrase, through Christ Jesus. Jesus says, and the apostles join with him to announce that judgment has been given over to him. In his role as mediator, as the perfect God-man, he will judge us all. Now that's not just some Trinitarian trivia. That is spectacular, and that is wonderful. Think of it, Christian. Jesus is called our advocate. He is our defense attorney. He loves us enough to lay down his life for us. And now, what are we promised as we head into judgment? Jesus, our advocate, is also our judge. (laughs) Well, that's a great arrangement. We fall into his hands. I'm like, give me that. What a relief to see one on the throne who is a friend. Amen? Reference back in February again when I, uh, you know, my sister died suddenly and I go back to my hometown of Ocala, Florida uh, to take care of her affairs, to sell her mobile home, to handle her, uh, her will. And, and these are things I didn't know how to do. Dealing with an estate, dealing with probate, dealing with a real estate deal. I, I didn't know how to do these things. But I remembered I had an old friend from high school who had been an attorney there in my hometown for all these years. And I looked him up, and I'm like, well, he was the right kind of attorney. And he did all of this stuff for me. He even owned the title company and put in a fast-track order to get the 
title settled. Then the real estate side of things. One of my best friends probably has uh, sold more real estate in that community than anybody ever. And I brought him on board to help me out here as well. And, and these two guys, Bill and Tom, joined together to walk me through it all step by step. What a relief it was to find two friends in positions of influence at a time of vulnerability and need. But nothing in comparison to this. Jesus, the lover of my soul, will be there to plead my case, and then he decides my case. Things look good for the lovers of Jesus as we approach Judgment Day. One other quick note before we move on. Verse 11 reminds us that our judge is impartial. And we spoke about this last time. The main idea is that he doesn't care about your race. He doesn't care about your ethnicity, what groups you are a part of. None of that will sway him. The Greek word translated impartial really means that he does not, it's a literal translation, he does not receive face. Huh. It's sort of a Greek idiom about true justice. It made me think of the idea of a blind audition. Anybody here? Some of our musicians, you ever participated in a blind audition? Anybody ever do that? Yeah? David did? That it? I, I hear this is something that is done uh, by symphony orchestras. The musician being uh, auditioned plays behind a curtain, so those evaluating uh, cannot see the sex or the race or the size or anything else about the person. They just hear the music. Now, in recent years, I'm told some orchestras are moving away from the process of a blind audition in order to give value to uh, diversity and not just the music. But Jesus, as judge, will not receive face. He, is, he will not be impacted by anything other than someone's character and faith and deeds. We have the promise of a perfect and a wonderful judge. Next, we notice that Judgment Day will consider more than just the externalities of our conduct. Our thoughts and our motives will be under review as well. It says, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. That would include secret deeds that no one else than you and God really know, but it will also include secret thoughts, your animosities, and your nurtured hatreds, it will include your lust and your arrogance. You know, the judge knows all, about all these things. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns, for he will bring our darkest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. Gulp. Then God will give to each one whatever praise is due. And that first part makes me wonder if there will be any praise due at all. Wow, this can be intimidating to think about, and it should instruct our behavior. But listen, my secret sins and my rotten motives will, listen, will result in praise. They will for somebody, maybe not me, but if not me, for Jesus. People will see all my flaws, and they'll say, oh man, what a scumbag he is. Is that what they'll say? No, no. They'll say, my, oh my, what an awesome Savior to set his love on one such as he. 
They'll sing his sins, they are many, but Christ's mercies are more. And that will be good. But then the other side of it is, my secret godly deeds will be shown too. My holy thoughts, my loving thoughts, and these two will result in praise of the Savior. Wow, what a powerful Savior to change that guy. You follow how this is going to work? It will all result in glory, mostly for whom? For Jesus. But some will spill over to you and to me. So bring it on and come, Lord Jesus. I'm ready. All right, finally, we get to look at judgment in the gospel. Paul makes this peculiar remark about God judging according to the gospel. Uh, According to my gospel, God, God will judge. This is the only time he calls it my gospel, by the way, which sounds a bit presumptuous, I would guess. Normally, Paul speaks of the gospel of God or the gospel of Christ or the gospel of grace, but here it's mine. And I think he means to suggest that there are others preaching a different gospel, a false gospel, and this is his shorthand for distinguishing the true gospel from the false. But I like that Paul wants to be identified with his message. He's not ashamed of it. Someone uh, asks you a question <laughs> you're not always eager to own. Is this your kid? <laughs> eh, <laughs> he was yesterday. Is this your car? Is that your gun? And you may not want to own up, but Paul does not hesitate. He says, God's gospel and my gospel, but gospel means what? Good news. We think of it as delivering us from judgment. How is that judgment according to it, this good news? Well, first, the gospel promises us judgment. It even includes the news that Jesus is the judge, and we see this throughout the preaching in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 10, Peter is preaching, and he says there in verse 42, he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. So we don't just declare to the world Jesus as a Savior on a cross. We preach Jesus, judge on a throne. Judgment is part of the message. In Acts 17, Paul's presenting the gospel to a pagan crowd in Athens, and he concludes with this reason to repent. He says, he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Of course, properly understood, the gospel message is a message about judgment. It is. John Stott writes, the good news of salvation shines brightly when it is seen against the dark background of divine judgment. We cheapen the gospel if we represent it as a deliverance from unhappiness or fear or guilt and other felt needs instead of a rescue from coming wrath. Now, the gospel does many things for a rescued soul, but what is there more important than this? This is the weightiest subject imaginable, far greater than our health, far greater than our family, far greater than the government. The gospel prepares one for the day of judgment and provides all that is needed to face that day with confidence, not just confidence, eager anticipation, because again, we know who's on the throne. Our Savior is on the throne, our advocate and our judge. Hallelujah.
So, how we need these things to sink deeply into our hearts. When we do, it's going to show forth in joy and in peace and in praise and in obedient living and in faithful witness for the one who is our king. That's sermon one and sermon two. Let's pray and give ourselves to the Lord before we head out. Father, thank you for your good word, for letting us know what is ahead for us on that great day. We rejoice, our God, that you are the one who is the impartial judge and that you have already demonstrated yourself to be a God very wonderfully disposed to our good, to our health and well-being and joy. And Father, I pray for those here who have joined us this morning who do not know what it means to walk according to your gospel. And we pray that they would come to Jesus and grasp that and learn to love him, to put their trust in him, to have their sins forgiven and their hearts renewed by his amazing grace. And Father, may our children experience this as well and be prepared not only for the life they'll live in these, this world, but for the judgment that awaits us all. Father, do apply these things to our heart. Thrill us by the truth and make us, Lord, faithful, obedient sons and daughters of yours. How we rejoice on this Father's Day that because of Christ, we're accepted into your family. We sit at your table and we walk according to your wisdom. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.